The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen, and we'll set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning, this is Kate, and I'm so glad you've joined me. Today's show is called Where to Look and How to See. It's a fresh take on vision. My guest is Mary Morton, curator of French paintings at the National Gallery of Art, and I like to tell Mary's story a little bit because it's uh, curious to me how one does become a curator. We're going to talk about that. But as a young girl growing up in California, Mary loved stories, beauty, and learning. Today, as the curator of French paintings at the National Gallery of Art, she's living her dream job. I met Mary through a mutual friend in 2009 as she was making the decision to leave the J. Paul Getty Museum in California and say yes to one of the most prominent roles in her profession, curator and head of the Department of French Paintings at the National Gallery of Art. This was a big decision, and it's a wonderful uh, honor to have her on the show today to share share her knowledge and her insight and her perspective with us. Um, you know, at the National Gallery, Mary oversees one of the world's most outstanding public collections of approximately 575 French paintings dating from the 17th century to the early 20th century and maintains an active program of related exhibits. Uh, Mary graduated from Stanford University, where she majored in history as an undergraduate. She received her master's and PhD in the history of art and architecture from Brown University in Rhode Island. Mary, thank you for joining me this morning, and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Thank you, Kate. It's nice to be here. Well, Mary, I, as I said, um, I'm so fascinated by how one becomes a curator. You know, I grew up in a small town where, you know, people became, you know, doctors and teachers and um, firemen <laughs> didn't necessarily, you know, have access to the idea of becoming a curator of a museum. Yet, as I am working professionally these years, I'm meeting more and more people who are interested in this kind of a, a path. Um, I'd love it if you could just start off by telling us, what does a, a curator do? Oh, yes. Um, good question. I think that is a, a source of mystery for, for many, even people that uh, regularly attend museums. What actually do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, we are most are centrally responsible for the maintenance of um, and caretaking of the permanent collection under our authority in our given institution. Um, and so that means just uh, make, making sure, working with the conservators and making sure that these objects are well taken care of. Um, and then uh, we are also in charge of the collection as a whole and growing it, which is to say um, adding important works that uh, create uh, new sort of um, conversations and dialogues with the works that we already have. We are the ones that produce the temporary exhibitions that tend to be the 
the main draw of, uh, of visitors to, to museums, although the National Gallery is a little bit different. We have such a great permanent collection that I think the majority of the people that come to the National Gallery are coming to see what we already have on permanent view. But we do do those temporary exhibitions in order to tell stories that we can't with our permanent collection or to explore some avenue of art history that we're particularly uh, interested in and um, feel particularly positioned to tell well. Um, we publish on our collection where we are supposed to know all that there is to know about the objects that we are responsible for. And so that requires uh, regular, consistent research, keeping up with the literature. There are new mm -hmm. books on French painting every day published mm -hmm. in the United States and across the world. Um, and then there's, of course, an educational aspect and an interpretive aspect. We're responsible, again, particularly, I feel this role particularly acutely at the National Gallery, to, um, you know, make this collection interesting and meaningful and accessible to, for us, the public, the people of the United States of America, um, but also just locally to the people of Washington, D.C. And so mm -hmm. we write often with the, with the help and input of the education department the texts that you read uh, on the walls or in the galleries. We do the audio tours. Um, we um, are responsible for the content on the website and, you know, trying to find ways to, to, to bring art to the people to make this stuff uh, interesting, basically, and as I said, um, uh, accessible. So that's I think that, I think that's most of what we do. But uh, well, that's sure. pretty. That's pretty <laughs> good description of what you do. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. You know, I, what strikes me as I listen to you talk about it is how scholarly it is. On the one hand, you know, the research, the reading, the knowing everything there is to know about this art, and then also the educational piece, you know, um, sharing what you know and finding ways to make it accessible to people who don't have the depth of knowledge that you do and who are interested but maybe not sure how to, how to access this art, you know. So there's, and then there's the, within that, maybe that storytelling component, you know, what yeah. actually do we read that you're putting up to guide us through an exhibit? Yeah, it's many. It's it's definitely it's many hats. We consider we consider ourselves art historians, but we're different from the art historians that you find in universities. In that there are all of these other kinds of activities that we are engaged in. You know, one of which is um, having conversations with people who aren't art experts about art. And academic art historians have the great privilege and pleasure of of um, working with students, certainly, but spending a lot of time uh, working with one another to advance the field of knowledge. And we do that. We do that as much as we can. Um, mm -hmm. There's also mm -hmm. this kind of dissemination um, aspect. Our audience is much larger, our audience, curatorial art historians versus academic art historians, in terms of just broader, um, the museum-going public and uh, you know, people that buy catalogs and bookstores, et cetera. But I find that to be, um, you know, a really en engrossing part of the job, having conversations with people who aren't experts and mm -hmm. trying to, uh, to, you know, make this stuff, bring, bring it alive. Um, mm. and, I, and I always find that those, those conversations, not always, but very often, are, are um, really exciting for me as a scholar, the things that I, that I learn in talking to, you know, a 10-year-old about, uh, you know, a landscape painting um, mm. could be, I mean, it could absolutely, you know, switch the way that I've been thinking about it or seeing it. So I find it to be actually the most exciting part of the work is um, these live conversations 
um, with other curators, with members of the public, with trustees, with, you know, with uh, uh, Girl Scout troops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the time, yeah, time in the galleries um, talking about Love the it. objects. Well, that's, that's um, it, it's kind of exciting to hear you describe those conversations and, and the idea that, you know, a 10-year-old can show you how to look in a new way. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very particular dynamic, which I guess is part of my field. This, um, it's, a, it's an interactive, live aspect of, um, you know, art learning. Uh, which takes place between generally two, you know, two individuals in the gallery in front of the object, and uh, and yeah, it's just incredible. Ten year old or um, you know, again, colleagues. Uh, there's nothing mm-hmm. better than mm-hmm. having somebody in the uh, in the museum who's spent their you know spent thirty or forty years you know looking at French painting, and I get to to take them through the things that I know very well. And wow, that's an ex- that's a really explosive. Um, uh, sort of uh, phenomenon um, as you walk from object to object and the, and the kinds of things that you sort of fire each other up about um, and where your um, ideas about that particular object can go in that, in that moment. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it's very dynamic, super exciting. Well, you know, Mary, I, I, um, I'm curious, you know, uh, this idea of, you know, becoming a curator, you know, how does one become a curator of art? When you were a little girl? Were you looking in this direction, or how did no, this happen? No. no, I mean, I started as a historian. I was real. I love history. I still love history, and um, loved art certainly. And the great thing about art history is this fusion of the the incredible um, pleasures of history with aesthetics. You know, just sort of art um, joy. Uh, and, uh, and, but I did it as an undergraduate. I loved going to museums. I started, um, you know, sort of in high school, uh, going to museums. And my mother took me to France when I was maybe a junior in high school. And, um, I discovered the sculptures of Rodin, which I just flipped out over. And then, but then in college, I ended up getting a, a bachelor's degree in history. Mm-hmm. And it's still, you know, it's still a, a very much a two-pronged, uh, pleasure for me. It's the uh, you know it's the it's the object as an extraordinarily beautiful thing that does things with color and texture and space that are very exciting, but it's also this window into um, another age, another era, and what you can find out about that moment and, and about the, that person making the object in that moment. That's just very exciting. It's it's uh, it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so bachelors in history, and then I worked actually in an arts educational center in Los Angeles in between, well, right after college, just so that I could, you know, get out into the world a little bit and earn a paycheck and pay rent, the thrill of having your own apartment and paying rent, I still remember, um, and then decided that I wanted to get a, get a, go back to school and get, get another degree, whether it was going to be a master's or a PhD, I wasn't totally sure. And within, I would say, within the first few months of uh, training at Brown in art history and the Ph.D. program, um, I knew that that was, that was the most exciting thing I could think of doing, was studying this material with these people. There was a wonderful department there. Hmm. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that you could make a profession. I just couldn't believe that you could be a professional, uh, you know, thinker about old art and, you know, spend your time teaching, talking, writing papers, and, you know, hopefully publishing books, that that was a profession, 
was something that had, you know, I knew it was, I knew it existed, but I had never seen myself doing that. And uh, that was very exciting. So I, th- I thought I would be a university professor. Wow. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. And yeah. then and then, what happened that you didn't become well, a university professor? you know, it's tough. Um, as any academic will tell you, it's a very tough, uh, practical world. Um, the job market at that time, this is the late 90s, um, was hard. There are a lot of people that want to be art historians. It's extremely competitive. Generally, what often happens is you can get a, if you can get a job, uh, you are thrilled, and that job is tenuous. It's either a one-year replacement, so you'll probably have to move in a year, or certainly it's untenured. I mean, um, you're never secure in your institution until you get tenure, and that can take years. Um, and at that point, I was approaching 30 years old, and I thought, um, you know, did I want to keep moving around the country taking these one-year positions? Um, and I'd always loved museums and thought that that would be really interesting work. I worked at the RISD Museum uh, part-time, well, uh, it was a, uh, a dissertation-funded position. It was, it was a position intended to help me finish. And I worked in the prints and drawings department at the RISD Museum and loved it. Um, again, working with objects and mm-hmm. uh, with mm-hmm. students. It was just thrilling. And curators. Um, and so I, there, this job came up that just had my name written all over it, and I jumped in and bullied the, the poor guy into giving me the job because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was so sure that I would be really good and that this was the job for me. It was sort of kismet. It was in Houston, Texas. And, wow. Uh, and it was from the very first day. The right job, been, yeah. Yeah, it was a great job, and every job I've had has been just, you know, really, really uh, exciting and, and uh, fulfilling. I mean, it's crazy to say, but um, it's, it's wonderful work. I mean, I think wow. people think it looks fun and sounds fun and I'm here to say it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we only have a few um, a few seconds here before we take a break, but are you an artist, Mary? Is that part of your story? No, that is not part of my story. I love yeah. artists and I love art. I consider myself more of a, of a historian and a writer. Um, yeah. I've dabbled here and there, but I don't have the patience or the, or the talent, uh, the ah. skills. Yeah, I, or skills. We should say skills. I mean, there's a very particular thing to being an artist. And, um, yeah. You know, the really good ones are so totally passionate and committed that um, it becomes sort of unquestionable for them, I think, in a certain point. Yeah. And that well, you know, not a call I, for me. We're going to take a break right now, mm-hmm. but, you know, one thing that really jumps out at me as I listen to you talk about this is how much appreciation you have of what you're working with, what you're looking at. We're going to talk about the role of appreciation and what you do when we come back from this break. We'll be right back. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Is your business model robust enough? 
In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I hope we will hear from you. Um, feel free to email us or give us a call. I'm sure Mary would love to answer your questions. Um, my guest today is Mary Morton, curator of French paintings at the National Gallery of Art here in Washington, D.C. Mary's job includes bringing together paintings that speak to each other, that tell us a story um, individually and together. We've been talking about how she became a curator and what that work is really all about. And Mary, I'd love to go back to what we were just uh, touching on, which is, you know, this idea of appreciation. And you told us you're not an artist yourself, but you have this extraordinary passion and appreciation for the works that you are um, curating. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that. You know, uh, what is it you're passionate about? What, what do you appreciate? Well, let's see. I mean, appreciation we were talking about a little bit earlier is an interesting um, idea as a kind of, um, you know, Active verb. I think that you know. I think it's about um, it's about what do I appreciate about the objects? It's about the um, the, the nature of the communication of, of of the artist, which sounds a little bit mundane. Um, this word that I used earlier, aesthetics, and you know, I think it is about enabling aesthetic pleasure or even joy, which um, anyone who uh, you know goes to um, concerts, musical concerts, or, you know, you finish a really great novel, that, that spread of emotion that you feel. Um, it's a heightened sense of sort of connection or universality, connection to, to other people and, and humanity. Um, and then there, it's all, but it's also just this sort of particular kind of pleasure. And some people have called it a spiritual pleasure or joy. Um, but it's very particular and, um, you know, it is shared by all of the arts, and there are wonderful uh, philosophical treatises about it, trying to define, you know, what it is. But uh, but you know it when you feel it, and um, you know you know you know the people that that are esthetes. They surround themselves with beautiful things. They love music. They lo- they go to movies. They read books, um, and uh, and those people are alive uh, often um, and get you know an incredible. Um, uh, sort of sense of, of sustenance and, and, and pleasure and joy out of all these things. And, you know, I worked with um, uh, one of my favorite uh, bosses ever, this extraordinary man, um, had this refrain for, for great things when we would come upon something that was really beautiful, either to buy or, um, you know, included in an exhibition or even in our own co- collection. And his refrain was, a reason to live. 
you know, it's a reason to live. I mean, it's, you know, and so, um, and I think that, you know, when I came to, to art as an adolescent, I think it was, I think it was, I needed, you know, I needed something to make me feel good and feel better. Um, mm-hmm. Adolescence mm-hmm. is tough. Oof, it was hard. Mm-hmm. And you get, you know, you're depressed and you're melancholic and you're miserable. And here's this beautiful thing that just elevates your your spirits. So that's, you know, that's this very special thing. And what's great about it in all of the arts um, and in all of the um, things that involve uh, the senses is that it is developable, that you can uh, in, uh, develop, you know, and enhance and uh, sort of get better and better at, at feeling these things. And, uh, you know, that sounds sort of self-indulgent, and I guess it is, but I find that the longer that I'm in this business, the more I get out of these art objects. The more I see, the more I feel, you know, the more I know. Um, and so, you know, what's really exciting about the visual arts and particularly art museums like the one I work in, is that you can read books and you, and you should read books about all this stuff. But really, it's about tra- it's about training the eye. It's about looking and looking and looking and looking at different things. And you don't have to read anything, you know. But you do have to look a lot. And um, you know, it's um, I liken it sometimes to those incredible people that uh, those onophiles, people that love wine, and you know, when they go to describe what it is that they are tasting. You know, when they take a sip, I mean, it's just incredible. And they, that takes years to do. Um, or particularly um, the musical people. And I'm not orally terribly sophisticated, but <laughs> I've had friends that, you know, you go to the symphony and they're, they're in another realm in what they're hearing from what I'm hearing. And I, I'm, I haven't had time lately, but I try harder and harder every year to, to, to learn more about, you know, classical music or jazz so that I can hear more. And um, anyways, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as you're describing it, you know, this kind of appreciation you're telling us can, you can cultivate it. You can actually um, add distinctions um, about what you're seeing and what you're feeling about what you're seeing. And so I'm, I'm struck by the way you're talking about this, that you're kind of talking on a couple of levels here. One is, one is looking and maybe the next is seeing and then mm-hmm. understanding what it is you're seeing or having some ability to um to connect the feeling with with the looking and yes. to be able to describe that but then there's also you were calling it i want to call it the knowing you're like what do you know about this thing which maybe is more optional as you were describing you don't have to read the book you don't have no. to know a ton to really appreciate it no. but it's fun to yeah. know and and the know. chances are that that if you know more and the more you know the more you're going to see and and feel and it just keeps going around and around so there are paintings that i've known you know my whole life and um and i you keep circling back to them and they keep saying something new because you have had a conversation about them you've read a new article about that artist um you have history with another group of objects that informs your present engagement with this object you've already known in in you know previous moments of your life i mean it's just yeah it just it just uh it goes on and on um, well, yeah. it, it sounds so so rewarding and so rich, and it's um, maybe it's this exploration of, of beauty and the human experience, you know, your own human experience, you know, plus knowledge and um, you know just the wonderful experience of, of learning and, and learning more and more. Um, you know, I'm I'm curious. Sometimes when you talk about this, you talk about like the object you know, the, the thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think some of us, when we go to an, an art museum, have that experience of, 
you know, you kind of walk into these hallowed halls and to these exhibits and there's kind of a hushed quality and you're not supposed to touch anything. And, <laughs> and as you kind of go through, you, um, you know, you, you know it's so important. Everything about it says this is important. And mm-hmm. yet sometimes it's also kind of intimidating. Yeah. You know, what, what, what advice do you have for us as we appreciate beauty in the way you're describing? Well, you mean as you, as you go to museums? Yeah, as you go to museums and as you look. Well, I think, you know, the more you go to museums, the more comfortable you are in, in those environments. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, I think it's the, you know, um, I used to, well, I, I, think, I, think, I think going alone can be really um, an interesting experience. And going with a notebook and writing things down, it's really about activating your viewing. Um, and whether you use the wall text to do that or an audio tour, or you go with somebody that knows more, or you go that, with somebody that knows less. Um, but I think that you know, going alone with a notebook is a wonderful thing. There's something about um, the total rapt attention that you can achieve when you're all by yourself with an object. Um, but I was talking earlier about uh, going with somebody else, which is um, you know, uh, it's a really great thing for, for friends to do. Um, and for, um, you know, couples to do. My husband and I have spent a lot of time in art museums. My kids and I have spent a lot of our time in art museums looking at things together and talking about, um, about them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a great thing for friends to do. And this thing that happens when you're having the conversation where you're looking at the object, you're talking, and you're seeing more in the moment, um, you know, mm. uh, uh, particularly for something that, for an object you've never seen before. Um, mm-hmm. You're looking at it. You're struck by the color, by the composition, by the patterns. But um, you know, the longer you look and 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 the longer you talk, uh, you know, with with somebody about it, um, you know, more and more things unfold in real time in the moment. It's it's this dynamic I was talking about before. So, you know, you yeah. just you just started to give us kind of some distinctions to look for. You know, color patterns, um, the dynamics of the the the, paint, the composition. Um, <laughs> What else? You know, like, can you just give us kind of a, a set of ideas about how we could, how we can look at art? You know, what should we be looking for? Well, you know, um, it, I think it's really important to, to remember that somebody made this thing and they made it for a reason. So I think the first thing to think about is wh- why did they make it? What, what, what were they trying to do with this object? Were they um, trying to, was, you know, were they trying to um, pump up the, the power, you know, of, of the king that they're portraying? Is it political propaganda? Were they um, in love with the sitter, and it's an ode to their feelings about this person? Um, if it's a landscape, in all likelihood, and I've spent a lot of time on landscape painting, uh, in all likelihood, if it's particularly, um, I spent a lot of time in 19th century French landscape painting, or 19th century <laughs> European yes. landscape painting, in all likelihood, if it's a landscape, it's, it's, what has happened is that the artist has gone into nature and was so overwhelmed by his or her emotion there that either on the spot or running back to the studio, they had to you know, process it and ex- express their, their feelings, their appreciation of what they had seen. So it's this, um, you know, reverie on nature, and you want to, you know, you want to open yourself up to to that. But that I think that's a great, great place to start is what is being communicated, um, and you know, is that uh, whatever that might have been, is it is it being communicated to you? Um, the other thing that we haven't talked about is taste, mm. and um, you know, d- and do you like it? 
you know, do you like this thing? And if you don't like it, it's certainly as powerful as if you do, and you want to figure out, you know, why that is. And the more you develop that idea of what it is that you like and don't like, which should change, you know, as you move through this development, Mm -hmm. um, the further you're getting in all of this. Um, so when you see something you don't like, instead of just sort of saying like, you know, I don't really like that, I think yeah, I'll why? move on. Why? Stand why there. Like yeah, it? Love it. Yeah. I love it when people don't like things, and I love it when people hate things. Oof! I just want to grab <laughs> them and make them talk to me. You know what? What is so offensive about this is just great. Um, but uh, you know, probably happier if they, if they if they do really love it. But trying to you know articulate that. And yeah. that's why I like the, the notebook method. You know, write it down. And, one, and as you are translating, translating it into words, it's becoming more sophisticated. And it's becoming, um, I guess you're rationalizing it in your head. You're putting words to it. And that is somehow evolving it further. You know, it's developing your, your feeling in front of, in front of the object. But, uh, oh, I love it. Yeah, I love the way you're stuff. describing that. It makes me want to quickly... Run across the metro and get down to <laughs> the national. Is, well, gallery. that is the great thing. I mean, that's why I love the gallery so much. The national gallery. You can, you know, you're in love with with uh, Manet, and you just you just want to get it. You read something about him, and you just want to look at the group that we've got. You can just run right in and look at them, particularly if you know exactly where they are, and then you know go back to your desk or go back mm-hmm. to you know go back to your job or. Yeah, it's really about it's really the stuff belongs to everybody, and that's how people interact with the objects that they own. You know, you don't just look at them once a year. You know, or you know, I'm, I'm glad years. you just said. You know, you can kind of run in and look at something, and then run back to your desk because yeah. I know some of my most avid museum going, you know, gallery going friends and colleagues, they really do. They'll say, I just want to look at this one painting, and they'll mm-hmm. go down for half an hour and just really mm-hmm. look at it and maybe write about it, and then, and then leave. They, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's a different mindset around appreciation than when you feel perhaps more like a tourist, like you sort mm-hmm. of have to see everything and move right. kind of in a, in a line through the, through the entire um, gallery. Yeah. So we're going we're gonna to take a break. When we come back, we're going to actually talk even more about um, what, we can, what, what we learn when we let ourselves see, and we're going to move on to the topic of vision. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you're ready to find your personal brand, look no further than Brand Your Fire, Get What You Want Radio with host Monica Magnetti. To achieve success in business, who you are and how you're presenting yourself makes all of the difference. Some of the topics discussed on our show include personal branding, what it is and how it will help you. We'll discuss the aspects of this including how to create a brand, drive traffic and increase SEO. Brand Your Fire, Get What You Want Radio, airs live every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Thank you for joining Mary and me today. If you have a chance to visit the National Gallery or any other art gallery near you, I hope you'll take what you've just learned from Mary and put it to use so that your enjoyment of the exhibit is greatly enhanced. Have some fun um, looking and seeing and feeling and hopefully learning and, and knowing some more. Uh, Mary, you have a wonderful phrase um, that I've, I've heard you say before about um, creating an experience that activates the visitor. What does that mean? Well, um, we have this collection, and um, I actually recently, just in January, had the great opportunity to rehang, reorganize the um, one of the strongest aspects of our French paintings collection, which is the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist works. And my goal and what I ended up doing was to try and get people to, um, you know, not just look at individual paintings, and we do have great masterpieces. Um, but to it's a, it's, a, it's a collection, and it's a collection that was put together by mostly a handful of people and really mostly, uh, you know, two or three people. Um, but, you know, the idea that two or three paintings together is a different thing than one standing on its own, and that you can um, create these conversations so that as you move from one picture to the next and then back again, there's something going on there, whether it's comparative or um, you're uh, contrasting them or, you know, there's a relationship there. There are two artists that are from the same moment. They're the same artist. They're from different moments, but the paintings have similarities. But So just to try and get provoke people, inspire people to think about these objects um, in concert. And, uh, and what I did actually was make, uh, there are 14 different uh, galleries holding this particular part of the collection. And I would say that there are at least 14 different sort of organizing principles that I hope people will come upon. Um, there are n- a number of other kinds of organizing principles that one could have applied to this material, but um, mm-hmm. this is what we've mm-hmm. got right now. And so it's, you know, it's about, uh, you know, engaging, about not being passive. And um, my, you know, my lowest professional point on a mundane level is when I'm so tired and I'm in a great museum, which happens all the time because I'm traveling mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. and, you know, at the very end of the day trying to, you know, eke out the last minute before the museum closes and you're so exhausted and you're standing in front of an object and nothing's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and you know you're not it's inspired. a great thing right. and you just have nothing. You just spent and it's it's just a terrible feeling it just feels like a waste <laughs> and you really just need to go away and come back in a fresher mode um or after a cup of coffee or something or the next day because it's an active thing it's not a passive activity and uh and so you want to uh to to you know yeah to make it active 
So when you say that, okay, what's, what it comes to my mind is, you know, we think about sort of turning on the television and then we sit down and the television shows us things that are right. active, you know, that basically the television's active, we're passive, sitting right. there receiving that programming and we don't have to do anything. Right. We don't even have to really think. But what you're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying is when you're looking at an object of art, um, the key to really being able to enjoy it is to be able to be present and to be uh, open and fresh to, to have the energy and the um, mm-hmm. I don't know what I guess really it's the energy to just yeah. really receive and engage your own engage. feelings yeah. and Inter- thoughts with what's there yeah absolutely yeah yeah I, I, I like I like that I love the thought of um, finding you know fresh and different ways to see the same thing potentially but from another angle from another perspective and to, to be able to show that to people um, I'm curious, Mary, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, why do these works of old art still matter to us? You know, what makes them so important that we, we should really be spending our time this way? Well, yeah, and the, the great ones, I mean, you mentioned st- stories and, and different kinds of interpretations, and the, the great old objects continue to be pub- published on and so you have this profession of uh, art historians. You have art critics. You have historians that also write about art, um, uh, literary um, critics. And, um, you know, the great things people just keep circling back to again and again and again and writing articles and writing books. There's a wonderful book that my um, dissertation advisor published called Twelve Views, and it's all about Manet's Bar at the Folie Berger. It's an anthology of of different uh, interpretations of that extraordinary masterpiece. It lives in the Courtauld Institute in London. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, it is what the profession is about, the way that art history as a um, scholarly field uh, changes with changing times and politics and ideas and contemporary philosophies. Um, but the objects remain the same. So you've got, you know, across the century, different generations responding to Manet and um, Leonardo and Michelangelo and these great artists who you seem to be on a first name basis with. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, you get to know them. I mean, it ends up, and as you advance in the career, you end up, get, you end up getting to know the, the scholars pretty well and where they're coming from and what they published on before, et cetera. But it's the same objects because it's these things. These things are are complex, and the and the people that made them were. Um, uh, sophisticated thinkers often, very sensitive to their times, always. Um, I mean, if you're interested in history, of course, it's about what that person is, 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 is letting you know um, on a really kind of intimate level about the world in which they live. Um, it is, um, you know, the aesthetics have to be pretty good. I mean, people have to think that this is a high-quality object, that it's powerful, that it... Um, is worthy, and so you get into all these um, considerations of of of, of quality, um, which can which you know by nature is is somewhat subjective. Um, but the classic canon consists of um, things that people seem to keep turning to again and again. Yeah, um, you know, you talk sometimes about genius and being, you know, being so fortunate as to to be surrounded by the work of genius. You know, how do we know something? How do we know the work of genius? Well, con- highly contested, and I should <laughs> be, I'm not being very um, politic in my uh, l- lack of, of, of postmodernism in all of this conversation. Genius <laughs> as a term has been um, 
debunked to some degree because, you know, really, what, what is it? Genius is something that a bunch of group, a group of people got together and decided um, that a particular person, you know, has. It's, it's consensus, and it changes. So your genius of the 1870s, you know, might be the fool of the 1920s. Um, so it's, it's subjective, and it's, it's, um, it can be, it's quali- it's quali- it's, you know, it can be qualified. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not essential, and it's not eternal, you know, and therefore it's not, you know, um, really part of uh, uh, a natural part of, of, of a person or a thing. Um, but we, can, we still use it, and we use it to talk about something that has power, that we've decided has power for us individually, mm-hmm. um, you know, aesthetically. And, uh, you know, so I can, I can, you know, name the people and the objects, and you just, you know, you come into contact with it, and you just, you know, you just say, you know, it's genius. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sorry, yeah, that's ter- terribly unsatisfying. But, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, and that's, that's, that's what's so interesting about yeah. our, our talking with you is, is for all the intellect that you clearly bring to this and that, that um, those in your profession do, it really sounds like it's about that kind of jolt of feeling of recognition of of a sense of beauty you know it's mm. it's really at that visceral level that we might you would probably call it an aesthetic response that we have an aesthetic response that tells us this is important you mm-hmm. know this yeah. is this and if you you know and if you don't i mean one of my great pleasures have been not having that response in front of something or a group of objects and then working at it knowing people that i respect that that See value something. it and and work working towards a, a, a comprehension and an appreciation. So I've had a lot of trouble with Renoir in my life, mm. works of Auguste Renoir. And I, you know, early on I thought, well, I've got to tackle this guy. I've got to figure this guy out. And I'm here to say that I have crossed the bar. And uh, you know, and I, I I absolutely think that Renoir was a genius. But it took work. You know, I had to look and be open and read and and uh, you know. And, 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 you know, keep working yeah. on it. What was your initial feeling about Renoir? And then how, what is it today? Well, you mean, what did I think of his paintings? Yeah, that, back that then. Was, that I was dismissive of. He, um, he, uh, he pa- his faces I still have trouble with. And so he's painting women and children, and very often, um, particularly in the later work, he just is not caring about any kind of facial expression that feels sentient or knowing or meaningful. Um, and so that can be a little offensive, you know, particularly uh-huh. when you are a woman and he's got these, you know, extraordinary bodies all over the place and you can't get any sense of individuality from the face. Uh. Um, so it's not, you know, it's often not about that. But um, uh, so those, oh, his color, you know, the palette, the very palette that he uses, the color combinations that he, that he the chords, the color chords that he constructs, I often found to be jarring. And I thought, you know, these are just not good, you know, these are crude, <laughs> you know, and, uh, yeah. but I had to come around. The combination of, of orange and green, I, that's troublesome for me, but he does it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. now I can get it. It's like, but again, it is like music. It's like listening to a piece of music that feels uncomfortable and jarring and maybe crude, and then coming to a place where you can listen and really understand its, its brilliance, and then possibly even start to enjoy it. So that's um, so where I, you've gotten to with Renoir. That's where I've gotten to, yeah. He's, he's unbelievable. He painted for a very long time, and he painted a lot of paintings that he wasn't really, you know, paying so much attention to. 
you know, people that paint every single day for, you know, decades and decades, they're not going to, every, every painting is not going to be a great one. So there's oh. a lot of stuff out there that's um, not good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's true of, of every artist, and particularly mm-hmm. the ones that lived a long time. Um, and so you have to get those out of your mind and focus on, on the uh, extraordinary accomplishments, of which there are hundreds and hundreds in Renoir's of. So, yes, um, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's really, yeah. um, really illustrates you know what you're saying, and and I think perhaps um, points out the benefits of really staying with something and letting yourself grow in appreciation. I think for those of you listening today, you know, one thing that I know I'm going to take away from our conversation, Mary, is this sense that you can grow your aesthetic. Um, awareness, you can grow your appreciation, and that it's like a practice, like anything else, just the practice of seeing and and appreciating and learning and just letting that be a really um, fulfilling and enriching part of your life. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Mary, I can't wait to hear you talk about vision, which is, of course, what our show is about. We'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, Please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. This is Kate Ebner. I'm talking with Mary Morton, curator of French paintings at the National Gallery. Mary has such a unique perspective, and I'm fascinated, Mary, to move our conversation into the realm of vision. And I know vision, we've been talking about vision as in the sense of looking, like actually seeing the way that perhaps, um, you know, or we might even have been talking about vision in the way that the artist had a vision that we are appreciating. Um, I even heard some pieces of vision when you were talking about um, bringing works of art together in a particular way, really the curator's vision of what they would like the um, 
the, the, the human appreciator to experience. Um, and I wonder, you know, you know, vision means seeing, literally, but in the context of this radio show, it also means seeing and articulating a desirable future. And, you know, I'm curious about your vision. What, what's really your vision, Mary, for, for the future from, this, from the position in life that you have? Well, we, um, I mean, professionally speaking, we get to practice um, visionary thinking and, and um, you know, are, are supposed to be practicing visionary thinking uh, regularly. And often the format of this are these exhibitions, these temporary exhibitions that, that people mm-hmm. come to see. They take anywhere from two or three to six or seven years to put together. And they all start with um, some kind of, you know, art historical vision, some story that you're trying to tell that will require particular uh, bringing together of objects. And so you have to, you know, envision what, you know, what that's going to look like and what story you're going to tell and what the, what, you know, what the, what the point of the whole project might be very, very early on. Um, and, uh, in fact, I've never done an exhibition in less than, you know, three or four years. Um, so there's that. Um, and then, you know, um, gosh, I, I just am, uh, I think that you know the digital age has become a really um, interesting one for art historians and for museums, and we're trying to figure figure out how to harness um, this extraordinary um, you know efflorescence of um, of interest in things that are that are that are visual, um, and you know still try to maintain uh, the relevance of and the interest of younger people in old art. Uh, and this is this is a real become a real struggle, and you see this in academic art history departments across the country and across the, the world, the Western world. Um, more and more students flocking to modern and contemporary—that's understandable—and fewer and fewer are going back to study the Renaissance or the Baroque or even 19th-century French. Um, and so, you know, I think it's become a real—it's um, a real sort of almost turning point. There's been a tradition in America of appreciating these old things. Um, that certainly isn't as old as that tradition in Europe, uh, but it is uh, many generations old. And what is going to happen in the next generation? And how are we going to keep the smart young kids, um, you know, interested in in what in, in our collections, and try and convince them of what they can gain from these collections? So that you know that requires a lot of vision, and it requires a, a you know a, a technologically informed vision. And art historians, by nature and by trade, are often not terribly technologically fluent. Um, to get a PhD in art history, I mean, you are voluntarily signing up for six or seven or eight or ten years, uh, you know, in the libraries and in an archive by yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, not that those places haven't become super advanced in terms of technology, but. Um, just since I was a graduate student, it's a, mm-hmm. art historical mm-hmm. research is totally transformed. But um, you know that takes a lot of, of, of visionary thinking. So you sort of have to keep keep in touch and in tune um, with things. And I think you know continue to articulate the importance in a very direct way and in an unembarrassed, um, assertive way. You know why this stuff is still interesting and important. Um, I think passion helps with that. I think uh, language helps with that. I think being not um, too scary and, uh, you know, particularly, I mean, a place like the National Gallery is such a beautiful building. My part of the building is the old building, the Pope building, which was 
built in the uh, early uh, late 30s and early 1940s, and it's such a beautiful space. It is a little bit intimidating. So, um, you know, you don't want people to be put off coming in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you want to, you know, um, a- approach people and provide people the, your points in a language that they're comfortable, you know, with. Um, mm-hmm. And so that you know, accessibility is key to our to our future in uh, in my in my particular field. Um, I think that we were talking about stories. I think we have to make sure that we're telling stories that are interesting about these objects. These objects do stand on their own. They are um, they can be in, interpreted in a variety of ways. Um, I think we have to you know make sure that we have a, represent, a representative body of curators to tell those stories that find things in these objects that are interesting to, you know, more than the uh, traditional, you know, group or class that tends to appreciate art. Um, and, uh, you know, there's nothing like a fresh uh, a perspective. Um, and so that, but that, you know, really, again, starts in, in graduate school. You've got to recruit these people, and you've got to have professors that are interested in, and engaged and inspiring. Um, so in a way, you know, I'm just hoping not to lose too much ground in the field of art history to um, an, an, uh, an exclusive interest in the present and future. Um, and, uh, you know, just make sure that, that people understand how key and crucial it is to, to understand uh, the past and to have a really firm, solid connection with it um, so that we can make, you know, educated decisions at, at, you know, at every level of our lives. And hopefully, you know, museums help with that a little bit. Um, in addition to, you know, being life-enhancing, I think it, it's, it's about wisdom. You know, it's about being a wise person and making decisions based on, on um, a certain level of, um, you know, often, um, you know, education, but also just thinking and feeling. Um, mm. Mm. So that goes that goes way broad, but you did ask a visionary question. Yeah. <laughs> I did ask for a vision, and I got yeah. so much from you on that question. You know, I, I think about what you're saying, and you know, this word accessibility. You know, mm. making it accessible so that people can access and then understand its relevance. You know, as well as benefit from from the, the deep personal experience of yeah. being yeah. being with these objects. You know, it's it seems like this idea of access, particularly in this digital age, mm-hmm. you know, how do we create access and what kinds of access? And so in an odd way, um, perhaps the future of your field is this um, almost like a stewardship of these beautiful pieces mm-hmm. and creating access using some of these new right. channels and new yeah, strategies. Which we are, you know, hard at work at. I mean, all, all certainly major art museums that, that have the resources are, uh, have, a, have a technology department that's, um, you know, in very creative ways trying to figure out. And I would, you know, I would refer to them still, these strategies, these strategies mm-hmm. for access mm-hmm. as, um, as hooks because it's, you know, it's always, it always has to lead to engagement with the actual thing you know, in the museum yes. or wherever yes. we have lent thing, and it's um, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be the contact, and you can yeah. call that uh, the aura, you know, of the of the original, as one great yeah. uh, 20th century philosopher um, uh, wrote brilliantly on. Or um, you know, it's really just about you know, you, the individual, and 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 the object, and you can use um, all kinds of technology to get you there and to enhance that experience. But it all still comes down to something that has nothing to do <laughs> with technology. That's right, and, it, and I, you know, I go back to what you said about, 
yeah, yeah. being active with yeah. it, you know, being yeah. being being fully present to the beauty that's available. You um, have to and, go. You have to go. You can't just okay. make a, a virtual collection on your laptop. And and now I think there's a, there's um, I think it's called Google Goggles. You can go. You can actually tour uh, art museums. Um, Virtually, like really go huh. down the the live the uh, uh, current time corridors and into different galleries, and that's all groovy. You can figure out the lay of the land before your visit, but you have to you have to see the thing. Um, it's like um, you know, obviously. I mean, the most uh, the easiest analogy is 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 again in music. The difference between even listening to a really uh, high quality CD on a really good um, player. Uh, the difference uh, versus to sitting in the hall and the range of sounds that you can hear from a live instrument, you know. You know, just, Mary, that is a beautiful uh, point and a great place for us to stop. I want to mm-hmm. thank you so much for being with me today. Um, you've just given us so much to think about, and I really do hope our listeners will go out there and begin to expand their appreciation. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Kate. You're great. Thank you very much. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.